and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And today we're going to be talking about Ebola, and that has been a topic, particularly in the U.S. media, that has been on everybody's mind when it comes to Africa. But we're going to talk about the Chinese involvement on this issue, and it's one of the areas that the Chinese, when it comes to PR, they're doing exceptionally well. Now, those are words that you actually don't hear come out of my mouth very often. Kobus, I don't think we've ever actually said that the Chinese do excellent PR, um, especially <laughs> in places like Africa. So it was really a little bit of a surprise to see uh, to see what the Chinese are doing and how they're engaged in this topic. And in so many ways, everything that the Chinese have been doing was crystallized in a picture that was featured on the BBC website. And it showed in uh, in the Liberian capital, Monrovia, a man by the name of Alfred Sirleaf, who edits what's called a chalkboard newspaper, where he writes on a chalkboard, uh, you know, all the news of the day and people kind of come around and he talks about it. It's a very oral way of giving news. And he wrote up a scoreboard, USA 1 versus China 5. And here are the key points that he pointed out. The U.S. orders its citizens evacuated as China steps in with 17 million U.S. dollars in anti-Ebola materials to help governments in West Africa. So in the optics of that are very, very powerful. And even though in many cases the United States has given tens of millions of dollars, I think 14 to 15 million is what they're up to right now, um, the China seems to be winning the perception battle here. And I hate to kind of say this in an us versus them, this is a competition, it's a battle. And in one ways, we have to keep the focus on the victims and people suffering from Ebola. But on the other hand, this is great power politics. And what we're going to talk about today is the diplomacy surrounding the Ebola crisis in West Africa. But before we get started into the China angle, Kobus, why don't you talk a little bit about you know the view from South Africa and how this issue is being covered uh, in the media and the perceptions on the continent about the seriousness of the issue, and then talk about how the outside powers kind of tie into this. Everyone is very jittery about this. Like just just on my Facebook, um, you know, kind of personal Facebook page, the all my African friends are, you know, posting updates on Ebola all the time. Everyone is really nervous. The South African government um, keeps, you know, has has put together task teams to try and to, to deal with it. No one has arrived in South Africa with, you know, with actual confirmed Ebola, but what one or two people were put in into quarantine and tested, and they all tested negative. Um, at the same time, you know, kind of Africa is, is really suffering, you know, a, a real kind of dip in in tourism profits this year. Uh, you know, the, like South African newspapers have been putting up headlines that millions of, of African trips have been cancelled. Um, you know, the international international um, airline companies are cancelling trips to to even to East Africa, which is not has no Ebola problem at all. Um, so the so Africa is feeling a little on edge. Um, because of this whole issue. So the very fact that China is sending personnel into West Africa to go and deal with it, that plays you know, powerfully, I think, in the African media. Yeah, I mean, the images have been very, very emotive. And, and the Chinese media, to its credit, actually, have been playing these up. And again, I say this not necessarily to be a, a cheerleader for Chinese propaganda, but actually to sit back with a little bit of admiration in, to see how many times the Chinese have blown it in the past. And, and actually, this time, they're executing pretty well. And one of the ways they're doing that is by showcasing the doctors, the medical teams who are actually going in. And that stands in very sharp contrast, as Mr. Sirleaf's uh, you know, neighborhood chalkboard pointed out. 
the, the, the symbolism of the West pulling out, and Japan as well, pulling out its medical staff. And the Chinese not only holding theirs there, but actually then deploying three new teams across the affected countries, uh, I think really resonated quite well. And, and it's a very powerful uh, image. And one of the things that they showcased in the Chinese media was the uh, those medical staffs leaving Beijing and leaving China. And you can imagine what that must feel like for those uh, those, th- th- those those medical workers. Some were doctors, some were nurses, some were technicians. I mean, Cobus, I mean, and again, it was very powerful images when you're kissing your loved ones goodbye and you're going into a place where, you know, everybody's leaving, where the, you know, the death rate is 60 to 65 percent. Uh, it's extraordinarily dangerous. And so I, I think it's pretty badass uh, of, of, of these, you know, of these dozens of Chinese medical staff to go in there. Definitely. Although I have to ask, like, let me ask you, like, how do you think it's going to play if someone actually gets infected? Well, like one of one of these one of these doctors. How is it going to play within China? Well, let's 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 kind of spend a little time on that. And let's talk about from the Chinese side. You know, there was a lot of backlash in the United States about the two uh, aid workers and the medical staff, the doctors who got infected, and and in the right wing media in the United States on Fox News, uh, Ann Coulter, for example, was one who said, "Well, you know what? They shouldn't have gone over there. It's their fault. We shouldn't spend these millions of dollars saving them because if they got uh, infected, Ann Coulter, classy as always." <laughs> Always, but she does represent to me a, a small but but very vocal minority, and I think you'd probably see that in in China as well, where people say, you know what, if you take that risk, that's on you, but we're not going to spend millions to get you out. And this comes, and I think it's very important to understand the politics from the Chinese side about the aid in uh, in West Africa for Ebola. Let's go back to November 2013. And November 2013, uh, Hurricane Haiyan completely ravaged the Philippines. And, uh, and, and it really was one of the most devastating hurricanes that the Philippines, and this is a country very well accustomed to hurricanes, had seen. The Chinese came in with uh, aid of $100,000. That was their initial response. Now, bear in mind, the United States deployed, uh, you know, its warships. Uh, the, the Japanese put $10 million in. The, uh, I think the Australians put about $20 million. The Americans put tens of millions in. And here are the Chinese, the second largest economy in the world, the big power in Asia, you know, displacing the Americans in Asia, coming in with $100,000. And they got completely bashed. So they were embarrassed, and then they upped it to $2 million in in aid uh, for Hurricane Haiyan. Now, that was then contrasted by none other than The Guardian and all the international media saying, China, with its $2 million, is giving less aid than IKEA in, uh, to the Philippines. And so they were really embarrassed by this. Now, what was interesting was on the Chinese side of it all, there was an enormous amount of criticism about the 200000 that they were giving because there is not a culture of aid in Chinese foreign policy and there's certainly not a culture of foreign aid in Chinese society. So there's no political constituency that supports these large aid programs, particularly in emergency situations. Because in China, on social media, people will say, why are you giving money to West Africa? Yeah, I feel bad for the fact that people are suffering over there. But at the same time, in rural China, the conditions are as bad. That's what they will say. Um, They are as chronic. They have earthquakes. They have natural disasters. And the amount of aid and activity coming from the provincial, local, and even federal governments in China, the national government, uh, oftentimes is deemed insufficient. So then when it comes to giving aid to these countries... People go, you know what? No. And, and it's just, again, we're coming from a very different kind of mindset here. You know, aid in the West, 
particularly in the United States and Europe, oftentimes is rooted in a Judeo-Christian type of ethic of helping those less fortunate. The Chinese don't have that same ethic. And so it's not that the Chinese are necessarily uh, bad or evil or kind of selfish. But again, this is a country of 1.3 billion people that is incredibly poor in many parts, um, is very poorly run in, in most parts. And yet here they are sending millions of, of dollars overseas. So politicians in China oftentimes take some political risk in deploying large amounts of aid overseas. I suspect that what we're seeing in West Africa is a reaction to what happened in the Philippines and that China sees the opportunity to regain some of the lost political capital that it, that, that it lost on the political stage uh, over the, the Philippines fiasco. And in particularly in Africa, it's seeing an opportunity to further kind of spread away, you know, chip away at this idea that it's a mercenary neocolonial imperial state that's only interested in the natural resources and is actually there to contribute to the health and well-being of the people. So uh, that was a very long-winded kind of background explanation. I suspect, Cobus, that 98% of what uh, of the background in China is lost on most Africans because, of course, people don't focus on other countries' domestic politics like that. Uh, but I think what people are focusing on, like we saw in this picture and we're seeing in the media narrative, is that China's there, they're present. And that really counts. People, not just money, but people are there. And I think it also then, you know, feeds into older narratives in Chinese um, public diplomacy itself. Like Chinese ideas about public diplomacy have for a long time been focused a lot on people-to-people exchange, already from the Mao era, um, rather than, for example, the way that the U.S. tries to use media as as a form of public diplomacy. So, you know, I think it feeds into both, you know, kind of ideas of what you should do in Africa and then also to relatively traditional ideas within China of like how of how foreign policy and foreign kind of aid or help should actually operate. And it's interesting, I just want to pick up on what you're talking about in in making the contrast between the Philippines and Liberia, Guinea and, and, and other parts of affected West Africa, that you know, Africa in so many ways is behaving differently in the Chinese foreign policy establishment than it is elsewhere. So in in the Philippines, bear in mind that they are, you know, rivals for some of the islands in the South China Sea. Uh, so there's a lot of political rivalry that's there. The relationships are very complicated. The Chinese don't have the media infrastructure uh, in South Asia the way they do in, in Africa now. And and again, what we you and I mentioned when Li Keqiang, the prime minister from China, came to Africa and was expressing humility and what a contrast that was to its relationship, say, with Japan, uh, with the United States and with uh, Southeast Asia, where it's a very aggressive foreign policy. Uh, there seems to be a very different tone being taken in, in Africa. And again, nothing highlights that more than than this aid and these doctors and the imagery and the, and, and the optics of what they're doing, very much in contrast to the foreign policy with the United States and Southeast Asia. I think that's true. Although now, you know, this week has also seen a kind of an interesting kind of counter narrative emerging in the way, in the particularly relating to the Youth Olympics that's taking place in Nanjing. Um, so, you know, China has, has set up a bunch of, of measures to contain the danger of Ebola, especially because so many people travel between West Africa and China. Um, and the athletes of the Youth Olympics have, have kind of become victims of this. Um, to to the extent that certain athletes are not actually not allowed to compete, um, and the Nigerian team 
actually Nigeria withdrew its team and there was actually quite a lot of of some kind of bad blood seemingly between Nigeria and China about this and interestingly on our Facebook page you know the, the stories relating to that got massive amounts of hits they did, um, they did. yeah but, so, um, so it seemed like people really took note of that side of the of the issue as well but let me let me again put a defense from from someone on this side of the of the globe uh, remember that in, uh, sensitivities to infectious diseases in Asia are in, incredibly high. Um, long before uh, almost anywhere else in the world, you know, when you get off an airplane in this part of the world, you, you go through a heat, a, a heat sensor where they check your body temperature. This is a part of the world where humans, animals, and temperature all come together in very toxic ways. So we had the SARS scare, and, and I can't over overstate how, the, how SARS from, from several years back scarred people in Hong Kong and people in, in China, where in Hong Kong, you have the 24-hour cable news channels with death toll numbers that are ticking up in real time. <laughs> I mean, and it just, and your people are locked in their houses because they're afraid that if somebody breathes on them, they will die. So those memories are very strong. We, we are confronted in this part of the world by avian flu, uh, you know, the bird flus. And, and again, it's just a toxic mix of animals, people, and heat that come together. So I can see why... They said, we don't know what this, you know, what Ebola can do. So we're going to be pragmatic. Um, here in Vietnam, uh, they, there were two Nigerians who were studying uh, med- medicine, I think it was, or business. Well, they were studying at the local university here, and they were quarantined for 21 days um, for no other reason, I think, than they're Nigerian. But there's, just, there's a fear here that if Ebola lands in Asia, in these poor parts of Asia, like, like here in Vietnam, that it'll just... It'll ravage. I think it's the same fear that you were saying that in the rest of Africa people have. I mean, imagine yes. if this gets so. So I think it, while it's easy to say, you know, from the Nigerians being angry, you know, stop. I think you have to take into account what it's like on this side of the world too. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree, and I, I completely understand that. But on the African side, the other, of course, issue is that Africa is always being portrayed as the home of disease. Um, you know, and Africans as themselves as these kind of walking disease vectors. And Africans are incredibly sensitive about that. Yeah. Um, and you know, kind of, if there's one way to get a bunch of Africans angry, it's that that's the way. Um, you know, so so it, it it plays into incredible like levels of anxiety and. You know, kind of collective chips on people's shoulders that that go back decades and decades, both in Asia and in Africa. Yeah. I think, and that I think makes Ebola such an explosive kind of thing to deal with. Well, it's um, the new reality. This is the new reality. I think you know, for the past ten years, the the concerns have come out of Asia, which was again SARS, avian flu. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we we've become familiar with these topics again. You know, if you have a fever, you know, you're not allowed to fly in Asia, and that's all because of the spread of infectious diseases. So I think this is a bond between Africa and Asia, but it's also, as you're pointing out, a very sensitive area that could potentially really strain relationships. Let me now, let's kind of shift again to the China side. And again, I don't mean to focus too much on the China side here, but Cobus, we are the China and Africa podcast, right? So uh, on our Facebook page, I want to read a comment and get your 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 thoughts on it. And uh, uh, a woman by the name of Don uh, Chenyang, uh, Don Chenyang Li, she wrote, she said, quote, To be honest, it is not fair to hold China up to the same standards as to the Western capitalist powers. China may be a major power, quote unquote, she said, but it is still a developing country. It may have a very large economy, but it also has a very large population, and China's GDP per capita is still much lower than that of the advanced capitalist countries of the West. You may think the Chinese people are, quote, rich. 
But these are poor regions in China, which are just as poor as many parts in Africa in terms of average income, only that they have better basic infrastructure due to China's socialist legacy. China is still a developing country, albeit a large developing country, not a developed country, and it is not fair to judge China by the same yardstick one uses for developed countries. So there is that, that there's a spokesperson for that, that audience that I was telling you about that says, we shouldn't make this a competition between, well, the United States is giving 14 million, China is giving 5, 7, 17 million and whatnot. And really that constituency in China that still says we should not necessarily be judged according to the standards of, uh, uh, be, be judged according to the standards of, of, of foreign, of other countries. I tend to agree with her. Um, I think just realistically, large parts of Western China is, is obviously very poor. But I think even even prosperous Eastern China is they they they're much richer than they used to be, and you know kind of and, and frequently they they put on the same level as Southern Europe, which. It's actually, you know, kind of in, in, in the first world stakes, actually not that rich. You know, I mean, Portugal is, is a struggling economy. It was very high, very high unemployment. Spain, same problem. South of the southern part of Italy and Greece, same problem. You know, kind of, so southern Europe, not necessarily, you know, kind of the highest place you could be in terms of richness. Um, and then also, I think even if you're doing well in Beijing, you're doing well under such a level of com- competitive living and, you know, kind of uh, against such Odds, um, that I, I can well understand that that even even Chinese people who live on the eastern side of China don't necessarily think of themselves as having made it and being you know consistently prosperous. Yeah. You know, it's it's still it's still too new. Um, so I think we again, it's it's the same thing as we need a new word. You know, kind of China isn't the first world, and I think the the, the countries, the rising powers that are following China into into the kind of prosperous levels, you know, pro- prosperous realm, they are also not going to be no one is going to be like Denmark again I yeah. think no you know, kind I, of, I think that, that that level of prosperity is a 20th century anomaly um, and and we, we need we need a new new word to, to describe the newly emerging or newly rich nations taking into account the kind of stresses that those people are living under well the the, the diplomacy related to Ebola and again we don't mean to cheapen or somehow trivialize anything that's happening in West Africa and the suffering that's going on. Uh, what we're talking about are the kind of ripple effects from this horrible tragedy. Uh, and there are there's a lot of diplomacy underway, and there's a lot of jockeying for position and optics, the photo ops that are happening both on the United States and the West, as well as in the Chinese side, are absolutely fascinating. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Join the conversation with Dawn. Uh, let, you know, she commented on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, right now, let me just check the number, 217,000 followers, Cobus. I It just blows me away that there's so many people, but it highlights the fact that there's this excellent, amazing conversation going going on over on our Facebook page. We're talking about Ebola. We're talking about all sorts of different aspects of it, China's foreign policy in Africa, and the optics, the media side, the media narrative that is so important in all of this. And we're going to continue to post articles uh, related to this, but we'd like to hear what you think. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think the Chinese are just, you know, I had somebody, uh, we have some of our naysayers, some of the people who are more kind of skeptical of the Chinese, uh, Kobus, and uh, let me just, I think uh, Mark Houston, I think is his name. 
And and he says, listen, you know, and people who live in China say the Chinese, they just mess things up. And if you shouldn't have any faith based on what, you know, people who live in China have, that these guys are going to be ex- going to be able to execute effectively in places like Liberia. So there's a lot of skepticism. And so we'd like to hear that. Uh, Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Kobus, if people want to follow what you're doing and what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? The easiest way is on our Facebook page. I mean, you'll see my name, I mean, brackets when I comment. I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting all of the pictures and the videos and the headlines every day. So if you want to kind of stay on top of the latest China and Africa headlines, head over to Facebook, find us on Twitter, let us know what you think, uh, if you have some comments. And if you have some expertise in this area, we'd love to have you on the show. We get comments and uh, feedback from people all the time, and then they end up coming on as guests. So this is an area we'd love to to expand on as well. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.